Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 273 being recorded on Thursday, August 19th, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason Scott Show listeners. Jason, as you and listeners know, two of my favorite topics are Amazon and entrepreneurship. Lately, there's been a lot of exciting intersections in that area as different companies have been started to kind of quote unquote roll up uh, Amazon FBA sellers and explore uh, a uh, house of brands kind of concept leveraging Amazon. So we're going to dig into that topic tonight and joining us on the podcast to help us explore that is Alex Kopko. He is the COO and founder of Forum Brands. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Super excited to be here, guys. Alex, we're thrilled to have you. And uh, Scott, that Scott wasn't just giving you lip service. Th- these are his two favorite topics. So he's going to be <laughs> super annoying to talk to. Um, but uh, before we jump into foreign brands, which we are excited to get to, uh, we always like to give listeners a little bit of a taste about our guest backgrounds and how, how you came in your role. And uh, I, I, if I have it right, I think you have kind of a perfect background for your current role. I do. Yeah, it's true. I have spent really the last decade in e-commerce. Um, I got my start working for Target, specifically for Target.com at the time when Target.com was actually still being powered by Amazon. Target, um, little known fact, was the largest seller on Amazon's marketplace back when I was there. Um, and I was part of the team um, that was rolling Target.com off of the Amazon platform, uh, which was a great first experience in my career to see what this whole e-commerce thing was about, um, working for especially a big box retailer and one as well respected as Target um, and as good at merchandising and all the great things that Target does. Um, it really did feel like the Wild West, despite it being a 50-year-old company. And then I uh, transitioned, was looking for um, just a, a change in life, a change in scenery. And uh, you know the winters in Minneapolis can be pretty brutal. And so I uh, actually had the opportunity to go work for Amazon in Seattle, where I, over a number of years, had basically every retail job that you can imagine at the company. Um, also did a stint at Amazon as a product manager, where I was working on Amazon's physical retail stores team, the non-grocery version, uh, which was super, super interesting. Um, a ton of technology went into powering the Amazon stores as well. And so I oversaw um, some of the technology aspects there. And really, over my course of my career at Amazon, fell in love with the power of data, the power of you know under understanding customers based on what they do as well as what they say. And being able to provide, you know, surprise and delight moments for them, um, regardless of whether they were online or in stores. Um, and for me, you know, my passion for entrepreneurship, since these are Scott's two favorite things, Amazon and entrepreneurship, was sort of nurtured at a very young age and <laughs> happy to delve into my memory palace there. But uh, the the impetus for, you know, really leaving Amazon to strike out on my own was predicated on the just ongoing shift to e-commerce and and the the adoption and of course you know the covid-19 pandemic has greatly uh sped that up but it was always a fascinating space for me and so really just had that itch and decided that the time was right in my career to make that leap that is awesome and so just just so i'm i'm being perfectly clear with our listeners you loved amazon so much that when uh target stopped working with them you quit and joined amazon <laughs> It, in as many words, yeah, sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> Jason, you were the chief digital officer of Target, right? Do I have that right? Uh, uh, yes. One of Jason Goldberg. Goldberg <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I get that confused. I, all the time. I, I, I have to confess, Jason, I did a double take when I first saw your name. And I was like, this can't possibly be Goldberger. And then realized that I was adding an ER to your name. Uh, Alex, if, uh, to make matters more confusing, A, you should know that the day that Jason joined Target, I got 300 LinkedIn invites from from Target employees. 
One of those might have been me. Um, yeah, Jason, that- when Jason joined, uh, he and I, I forget how this happened, but he and I, I was basically in the first meeting he ever had at Target. And then I was in a number of subsequent meetings. And so we just sort of kept running into each other. And it became a running joke over um, the rest of my time at Target, which was not that much longer, um, that every time we ran into each other, it was just, you know, one of those moments. Um, so it's been fun to watch Jason's career evolve. Yeah, it, uh, it nobody cares. But like the overlaps are, are super complicated. I've actually uh, worked uh, with Target for an awfully long time. Uh, in fact, I was in a conference room in Minneapolis on 9-11 with Jeff Bezos wow. doing the Amazon contract um, the uh, the day that the the Twin Towers was hit um, and uh, did a lot of work with Steve Eastman and Michael Francis and all those. Yeah, so, yeah. I, so I do have a sort of a, a target history. And then, of course, uh, uh, I'm at Publicis, which owns Sapient, which was the big team that helped stand up Target.com when you guys moved off of Amazon. That's right. So. Project Everest. Exactly. Um, so lots, lots of overlaps, but, uh, uh, as per usual, um, I just talk about all this stuff while you actually did it. So, so we're, (laughs) we're excited, uh, to, to hear about it from you, but I think Scott, um, is undoubtedly going to ask you some Amazon trivia questions first. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it must've been interesting. You know, I haven't been as deep as you guys have, uh, at target, but I have spent a lot of time at Amazon, Seems like a big culture difference there. What what was that like? Yeah, it was a big culture difference. Um, I think the biggest difference in my experience was I was well. There's two two components to this. First and foremost, I felt like I had a tremendous amount of responsibility uh, from the very very first day at Amazon. Um, Amazon having built much of its own technology internally, you know, there were, there were safeguards, there were checks and balances. You couldn't really screw anything up, but I had a lot of control over my P and L, which, you know, when I would interview people or when people would join the team, I would sort of liken my business to, and I I was a, a vendor manager in video games for a number of years. And I would liken it to my little video games or my little comic book shop on the street corner. And, you know, we would talk about what does our window front look like today? We've got to walk our store and make sure that, you know, some kid didn't spit gum on our floor. And so it was, it was very much that feel. And I had the power to keep things clean and, and sort of, do what I thought was in the best interest of customers. Target, on the other hand, uh, it is a company that has one of the most iconic brands on the planet. You see that bullseye and you just instantaneously know, even if you're not from America, <laughs> you pretty much know what Target is. And so with that, you know, with, with, with great power comes great responsibility. With great branding comes great responsibility. And so my experience at Target was a little bit different in that, a, we were big. We were really big. And when I joined Amazon, we weren't that big at the time. And I worked for Amazon Canada, so we were really not that big. Um, Target was big. And so the the conversations with vendors, the responsibility that we had to guests, um, you know, despite being working for the e-commerce arm of Target, we we took sort of the brand very, very, very seriously. And everything was in the spirit of ensuring that people when they interacted with that bullseye had the best possible experience. And so it was, it was just a different ethos, right? It was a different mindset. Um, and one worked great for one company for the last five decades. The other was kind of making it up as they went along and now have become one of Earth's largest companies. And there were no guarantees either way, but it, it certainly was a very interesting mind shift. And I learned a lot at both, um, to be totally honest with you. Um, and a lot of my reasoning for going to work for Amazon was not because Target rolled off Amazon and then I went to work for Amazon, but it was because I felt like I actually wanted both sides of that coin. I wanted to both have the big box retail. How do you, how do you take a legacy brand and bring it into the digital world? And what about that disruption? What, what about that company that is leading that disruption, leading the efforts of bringing retail into the digital world? And so. It was a little bit selfishly. I just wanted to be as well as well balanced as I possibly could be. Very cool. Um, so did you work for Amazon Canada the whole time or you kind of bounced between the US and Canada? 
So I worked for Amazon Canada when I was in retail, uh, in e-commerce retail for the whole time. Um, I did work very closely with my US-based counterparts. I worked on um, the initiative, which is now known as NARF, but internally was known as NAFN, which was the unification of the North American supply chain. Um, I supported the launch of Amazon Mexico. Um, and so I, you know, one of the benefits of working for a smaller arm within a big company is you have a lot of resources at your disposal, but you also have a lot of latitude to try things. Um, I launched Twitch Prime in Canada when we bought Twitch. Um, I brought virtual bundling technology to Canada as a 25-year-old know-nothing in the tech space, which was incredibly interesting. Um, and again, really started to give me that feel for the power of tech and 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 building technology that can enable anybody in the company to be successful, not just the people who know how to wield the technology. Cool. A lot of people... Uh, that have worked at Amazon that start companies, they bring a lot of the management principles over. Um, is that something you plan on doing or you're just like uh, starting with a clean whiteboard? Um, man. Yeah. Amazon's culture is uh, it is definitive and we certainly have borrowed um, in many cases, inadvertently uh, a lot of the principles, you know, one of our, our core leadership principles is bias for action. We have one that is called act like an owner um, we have one called the best ideas win, which is, you know, a, a hybrid of is right a lot and invent and simplify. And we did this sort of inadvertently, but you have to admit the principles are pretty darn good. And, yeah. you know, Dave Glick and I, um, Dave's over at Flex, we, we often, and he does a lot of posts on LinkedIn talking about the impact that Amazon's culture had on him and how he brings that to Flex. And I, a lot of what he talks about resonates very deeply. And we kind of joke about, you know, once an Amazonian, always an Amazonian. Um, it, it, it always comes back up in some, in some fashion. Yeah. As someone that's an outsider and having interacted with all the different tech companies, the, the other ones have these like little throwaway things like, you know, uh, what is it? Do no evil or be, don't be evil or something. <laughs> Whereas the Amazon's <laughs> when, you know, and, and they end up being mocked by all the employees at the end of the yeah. day. Um, the Amazon ones, they just seem so much more solid. And, and, you know, I've seen the document where they give case studies and then what not to do and what, you know, Jeff Bezos uh, little um, stories around the principle. So it, it just is so much better thought out than either, anything else I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, even the most resistant employees, I think, drink at least a little bit of the Kool-Aid when you get yeah. there because it's impossible to avoid. You can't not be in a meeting, especially when tensions are high. And this is the whole purpose of having strong leadership principles is so that when you can't be in every meeting and every discussion, you, you want people working for you to behave and make decisions in a way that are consistent with how you would do it. That is the hallmark of, of, of strong leadership principles. And I, like you can read the everything store, which I did when I was interviewing with Amazon and they say, you know, um, <laughs> Jeff has this thing about like, Oh, the customer's always in the room, leave the empty chair. Like we talk about customers as if they are actually in the room. That's not, mm -hmm. that's not a lie. That's not like a thing that, you know, has been spawned at, like, we literally do that. We say like, what would the customer think about this? How's that going to impact the CX? Like we care very, very deeply. And that's just one of the principles. Um, and so people use them in their vernacular. And actually my wife still works for Amazon and our friends sometimes get a little bit annoyed because occasionally she and I will be talking about a hard thing at work and we'll just default to sort of the Amazon lingo. And they're like, you guys have to know how you sound to outside people, which is <laughs> not great. <laughs> uh, Amazon romance. I do. I do think the um, Amazon leadership principles are legit, and and you know have certainly contributed to their their, uh, their culture surviving even as it's scaled. But uh, just just a counter argument to Scott's point, they did add two new leadership principles this year, and one of them basically is "don't be evil." And yeah. then in parentheses, it says to employees. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I uh, mean that's just an overreaction to crying at the desk article. <laughs> That was, uh, yeah, I was there during, during the infamous New York Times article. Um, yeah. It got some things right. It got some things wrong. Yeah. Were you crying at your desk? Uh, I was not personally crying at my desk. No. 
And I don't know anyone who did, but I also would not say that I knew every single person at Amazon either. Well, do you have any fun uh, Andy, Jasky, or Jeff stories? Um, it's <laughs> fun, fun for me, not that much fun for uh, probably listeners, but I'll just give you the anecdote. Jeff is like a rare unicorn around Seattle. And anytime you see him, it is a Jeff sighting. And people will like stop what they're doing and immediately run back to their desks to tell everybody that they had a Jeff sighting. And my only Jeff sightings <laughs> really came from, uh, from the stage um, at the all hands meetings. Um, I was fortunate enough to work on some projects that won Just Do It Awards, um, which is one of the awards where Jeff gives out a, a Nike shoe and there's a whole story behind that. Um, and so my, my interaction was limited to the, uh, Jeff announcing a thing on the stage and my face being up on a, up on a wall. That was, those are my only sightings. Nice. Did you get a picture of you and Jeff? I did not. <laughs> oh man. That was yeah. A good one. yeah. We yeah. can Photoshop it. Jason's a Photoshop guru. We'll, there you go. We'll create one for you. Yeah. yeah. You can, you can put my face in there. I'll put all um, three of us. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, with Jassy, so when I was at Amazon, I actually co-founded uh, an internal employee network called Connected Amazon, and it really sort of started. Actually, it started from Target, honestly, um, because one thing that Target does exceptionally well is they have all of these sort of like affinity groups. Isn't they're like employee networks, and there's like an acapella group, and there's you know the women who ride motorcycles group. And so I was a member of all of these different sort of target networks and I got to meet the global VP of Lego and I got to meet, you know, higher ups at LinkedIn. And, and it just was always really fascinating to me and sort of made me feel really happy that I worked for target. And when I started at Amazon, they had affinity networks, but they didn't do a lot. I mean, they, they were, they were sort of identity based and it was not, um, the programming just wasn't as robust as what you got from the grassroots target organizations. And so a friend of mine and I and a couple of other people got together. I must've been there four months at the time and started this group connected Amazon to try to provide some, some amount of programming for that. And Andy Jassy was actually kind enough to be one of our fireside chat speakers. And we booked the biggest room that they had on campus at the time. I think it could fit about 400 people. And we had 400 people like an hour and a half before the fireside chat even started. And so we had all these people live streaming and all the like conference rooms in um, one of the buildings there. And from there, you know, it kind of took on a life of its own. So I credit Andy for, uh, you know, really making Connected Amazon as big of a deal as it has become, which I think now they've got 30, 40,000 Amazonians are like registered members of Connected Amazon and they've got a nice big budget and full-time people doing programming. Um, and that all came out of the grassroots. Very cool. Um, so truth be told, we could probably do Amazon stories all night and be perfectly <laughs> happy. Uh, but I do want to talk about foreign brands, obviously. Yeah. Um, so before we jump into that in too much detail, uh, uh, Scott kind of alluded to the business model, but can you kind of give us the foreign brands elevator pitch? Yeah. So, you know, Scott is right in that there are a, a, a number of groups really around the world now who are looking to acquire Amazon FBA businesses, do a sort of brand of brands, um, roll them together. We fall into that, but we think about ourselves a little bit differently. I think the moniker that gets thrown around a lot is, is aggregator. Um, we, we don't see ourselves as that. And you'll probably based on my background, understand why, you know, our model is not to do a high volume of deals. It's to, it's to be principled and disciplined in the deals that we do do. And we are much more focused on building um, a concentrated portfolio in specific categories that we believe we can turn into like household staples. And so actually, as much as I love Amazon, and again, you're right, we could probably spend, you know, two hours just swapping stories about that. Our goal is to take fledgling brands that we believe have a lot of potential 
and put them wherever the customers who want to shop for those products are shopping. And that may be on Amazon, and we hope that it is. But even if it's not, we'll find ways to make sure that our products are available for the customers who want to buy them. And so what that means is we might review a thousand deals a year and we'll acquire a handful of them rather than, you know, does it meet our basic minimum criteria? If yes, then we'll proceed. Um, and so it's just a little bit of a different, a different mindset for us. And it causes our employees to make decisions differently, which is, and literally the document that we have when we do diligence is called the what you have to believe document. It's do we actually believe in this brand? Can it actually become a consumer household staple? If yes, then there's a whole bunch of other criteria that we review. If no, we're okay passing on a deal. And it's nothing against the brand owner. It's nothing against the seller. We're just very disciplined for what we're looking for. Cool. Um, and then, so it is a busy space. So how would you help help me kind of have a mental map of how you guys fit in? So there's there's Thrashio. There's like one out of Austin whose name I can't remember. There's a couple others. How, uh, how would you kind of feel that you guys differentiate from from the pack? Yeah, we're we differentiate in two ways. First and foremost, like I was describing, we're operators first, right? Mm -hmm. We, my two co-founders, both come from the investing world. They run a very efficient M and A uh, process. Um, the other kind of oversees the holding company and the structure within. I oversee all things related to brand growth. And I have a team of probably 50% ex-Amazonians um, who have, have a similar mindset as me, which is, again, we, we, build, we believe in the power of a brand and we believe in brand equity. We believe in the direct-to-consumer space as a way of making sure that we're able to reach customers who get genuine value out of our products. And so that to us was the most exciting thing. So we're, again, very selective in our deals. Um, secondarily is our tech and Scott, we were kind of bantering about this, um, you know, before we started recording, but we are highly, highly, highly focused on building an integrated omni-channel system internal to forum brands. And this is not, this is not meant to be a knock to, uh, any of the software, uh, out in the world. But my belief is that, is that there is value to building technology that suits the company that we are trying to build rather than having to build a company that suits the technology that's available to us today. And again, it's, it sounds like a semantic difference, but it's a big mindset shift for my team where every single employee, regardless of whether you're in M&A, corporate finance, or marketing, you're all product managers. Every single person is tasked with finding ways to automate the automatable, use data to make decisions, ask for systems that we either don't have or that are underdeveloped so that we can build something that works for foreign brands and makes each and every one of our employees more efficient. Well, give us an idea of the scale. Like where are you guys um, maybe capital raised or number of brands kind of in your, your yeah. pack, if you will, Any, anything you can share, but obviously don't want anything super confidential. Sure, sure. So we're not disclosing the number of brands that we have right now, but uh, we did recently announce a $27 million Series A equity raise led by Norwest Venture Partners. Um, our seed was done by NFX um, out of Palo Alto. And so, you know, that, that $27 million that we recently raised is, uh, is being, being put to two purposes. One, hiring hiring like crazy, building out a, a team of world-class operators uh, first and foremost. And then secondarily is to a focus on technology. And that is, you know, scaling up our tech stack, hiring a high performing, you know, world-class tech team. We've got a number of data scientists and we're already finding ways to optimize our businesses that we do own um, by way of machine learning. It's also, we actually use machine learning to help identify high quality brands to potentially reach out to as well. Um, and so again, it, it sort of tech underpins everything that we do and we're investing very heavily in that space. Awesome. Uh, and you, you kind of uh, mentioned that you were being selective on acquisitions. Like, do you have, 
any specific like are most of your criteria around financial metrics? Do, are there particular product categories or particular um, go to market models or things that like sort of play into your your preferred portfolio companies? Yeah, so we we are focused on certain categories, um, categories that we refer to sort of colloquially as. And I thought I was going to butcher that word and I totally got it, um, it. colloquially as uh, consumer durables. So we steer clear from food and beverage. We steer clear from, you know, fad related items. Um, we, we, I mean, you, you could really liken us to sort of a new age Procter and Gamble where we're focused on, you know, pets and home and kitchen, uh, patio lawn and garden um, we have, you know, we, we play in the fitness space, the outdoor space. Um, and so these are really things that are like, you know, you, you would go to your cousin's house and open up their cabinets or look in their closet and you would find a bunch of our products there. That's what we're really focused on. Um, so we, we will, we'll stay away from like clothing. We don't do fashion brands. Um, and from there, you know, we we have what we call the four pillars, um, because as a good Amazonian, I love my frameworks. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's it's our sort of M&A decision making framework, which, you know, we're very transparent about when we get into the conversation with sellers. Um, and it's something that, you know, our approach is to be very seller friendly. We we over index in the handholding because we want to make the deal as comfortable as possible. My co-founder Ruben, um, who <laughs> leads all the M and A efforts, he still personally gets on all the calls with sellers, um, and so financial profile matters, category matters. But again, a lot there are a lot of other considerations that go into that. What you have to believe, what we have to believe collectively as a team, as an investment committee, as operators, as brand builders, um, and and so we're we are we view these deals as puzzle pieces that we look to fit together. Is part of your strategy to, um, so you, you acquire these brands, you get them. Um, you know, I think there's probably some consolidation where, uh, you know, what we've seen with other players is a review of the packaging, um, bringing them over into a consolidated marketing team, usually some consolidation around sourcing and fulfillment. Uh, and then you've got your technology platform. Let me, let me pause there. Is, is that, is that you guys do all those things? Yep, absolutely. Yep. I mean, I, I think a lot of that is, you know, <laughs> and most of the players, us included are what at most two, two and a half years old. So these are like, <laughs> there's still a lot of table stakes stuff to be done with these, with these brands as we're fitting them into our process and our portfolio for sure. Yeah. Cool. And I think I know the answer to this one, but I'll, I'll ask anyway. So then, um, you know, one strategy, and I'm, I'm obviously a big proponent of this is if you can do X on Amazon, you can dip, you kind of typically do, you know, the same amount, call it, you know, X again over on other channels is part of your, your plan to then go across different online channels uh, with the brands, or do you really want to just kind of focus on Amazon for a while and double down based on, on the platforms you built? That's, uh, my, my Amazonian, this is about to show here. So we have what we have the concept of Amazon's day one. We have, <laughs> we have playbooks, which we call day zero and day one. And the day zero playbooks are sort of that table stake stuff. Can we consolidate at ports? Can we, you know, is, are there opportunities for us to redo the packaging? We'll get deep into the reviews and apply NLP to reviews to make sure that we have a good understanding of what customers like and equally important what they don't like about the products that we're acquiring. And so we'll, we'll do all that day zero stuff to sort of get our, our house in order. And that is predominantly Amazon focused, right? Most of these businesses do the vast majority of their sales on Amazon. And so for us to be world-class operators, like we must be world-class at Amazon. That, that is core to the strategy. From there, we move into day one because at Amazon, it's always day one. So really it's day forever, but we call it day one. And those are the things that A, our technology powers, right? And Scott, you know, the power of optimization, of being able to have an integrated platform where data from one part of the business marketing 
informs actions in another part of the business, product development and design, packaging, pricing, right? And so our ability to tie these things together, um, these sort of disparate data points to actually build a mental model. And I am sure that my team is so tired of the phrase mental model because I preach it constantly, but that's really what it's about for us is building that mental model. So the, the, that was a long-winded way of answering your question, which is, yes, we will be opportunistic brand by brand um, in, in channels off Amazon. And you know we're operating in eight countries right now. We are operating across five or six channels. Um, and so our footprint is already diverse. And you know we're a year old at this point. Awesome. Uh, side note, you can always tell uh, a tech first company when they start counting at day zero instead of day one. <laughs> exactly. I'm so glad, Jason, that you picked up on that. <laughs> I'm, I'm tracking. Um, and so that yeah. reminds me, I do want to kind of uh, click down into your tech stack for a second. But before we do, I'm just always curious, like, it seems obvious, like one of the big um, sort of investment theories here would be you acquire these companies and you have unique um, expertise, capabilities, and tech that then causes those companies to be more valuable. Like right. you help them become more efficient on Amazon, more successful, et cetera, et cetera. And that, right. that um, accelerates uh, the value of your investment. But uh, each of those companies probably had some unique skill sets. Like I'm always curious... Like, does it work out that those companies are able to help each other very much? And are you seeing like, uh, like, are you providing most of the value add or are you acquiring a lot of value add from these, these individual companies that mm -hmm. then benefits the rest of the portfolio? Yeah. Yeah. You know, currently it has been, uh, the former we're providing most of the value add though, where we are actually seeing things move is as the space becomes more well-known. I mean, there are, there are so many sellers, right? So many, many, many of them do still do not know that an exit is an option for them. Many still are under the misconception that, eek, I don't want to do this anymore. I guess I'll just shut my store down. I'll go on permanent vacation mode. And that is tragic to me because they have loyal customers. They're generating real cash. And so it's a shame for companies to shut it down. What we're seeing more and more in the conversations that we're having with, with prospective sellers is this desire to, to remain plugged into the brand. And frankly, this is how we win deals um, in a lot of cases is because we care very deeply. You know, Simon Sinek has one of the most viewed TED Talks ever, right? Which is start with why. And that is how we start. Uh, we start with why did the entrepreneur start this business? And sometimes it was like, I don't know, I was in college and needed some extra beer money or I had to pay rent or whatever. Other times it was, you know, my mother had this malady that caused her not to be able to do a certain thing. And so I found this product and decided that maybe it could help other people. Right. And every single story is different. And so we learn a lot in the stories, but we also do learn a lot from the sellers and we're super flexible with our pricing structure. We don't have sort of a, we don't really have like a take it or leave it style or we want to suit sellers in the ways that that works the best for them. And so some are willing to take a little less upfront, but they want to benefit and participate in the upside over the next year. We're happy to do that. And to the extent that they want to be plugged in and launch more products and use our tech and you know get support from our team, we're happy to do that as well. And so it really is a case-by-case -case basis. There's no sort of one sweeping, you know, this is how we do it forever. Um, flexibility is kind of the name of the game for us in a lot of ways. Got it. Um, and so let's talk about that that tech stack for a second. Um, I'm always curious what people decide to build and find the most value in building. Like, are you mostly building tools around uh, catalog management and digital shelf? Are you doing like magic pricing logic? Are you doing like ad buying and placement and all that? Like, what what sort of problems are you trying to solve with the tech stack with your tech stack for the sellers? 
I'd be curious to hear what your next two items would be, Jason, because uh, everything you just said and more. Um, actually, where we started was uh, we started with an engine that I alluded to earlier that helps us identify high quality assets that meet our criteria. That's where we began. And so we you know, started plugging into a variety of data sets um, from a variety of companies tying it together, you know, applying our own modeling on top of it, and now use that to identify brands. The tertiary benefit from that is when you have a lot of data um, at, at a category level, you can start to also benchmark yourself. And so we've been able to, you know, build benchmarks and say, what should, what should this company be doing? What could this company look like? What, what's if scenario A through Z happened, where would we fall uh, in this space? And from there, it's kind of grown organically. And so catalog management, I mean, you can't run a direct consumer business on one channel, let alone many channels, let alone in multiple geos. Uh, if you don't have a strong sort of item master. So we we certainly started there, focused very heavily there in the early days to make sure that we had a sound way of tying all of these data points together um, across customers, across orders, across products and brands. And from there, yeah, I mean, there are natural extensions in all facets, right? Pricing drives forecast. And our forecast drives our inventory buys. And our inventory buys drive how much warehousing space we need or our consolidation at various ports or our ordering cadence. And guys, let me know if you want to talk about the state of the supply chain right now around the world. But that is a huge problem in and of itself. And so we've invested heavily in in building technology that gives our people visibility to every single step of the supply chain so that we know day by day, minute by minute, where goods are. Because as I'm sure you guys know, uh, if you fall out of stock, like falling out of stock, especially on Amazon is a really, 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 really big deal. Because not only is there the missed sales from that, but you also have to then reinvest to, you know, get your uh, advertising spun back up and to reclaim potentially your spot in search. And that's really expensive to do. And so the economic opportunity there is not just, well, we have, you know, air freight or extra holding costs or missed sales, but it's also advertising. It's also customer experience. It's also bundles, which also fall out of stock if a component is out of stock. And so the blast radius is wider, but we have a way to tie that all together and be able to make smarter economic decisions based on that. Yeah, that that's a super important point. Um, and it, I'm still shocked how many people don't don't get that. But if you're out of stock for three days out of a month at Target and you lose three days worth of sales. That's right. Um, but you're out of stock uh, at Amazon. And what happens is uh, you fall to what's called page two of search, which is equivalent page to being delisted. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then you've got to earn your way back. And so that's funny. Like my my question about your tech stack, uh, I'm always curious how people answer because like, well, in the old world, those were all separate tools and you could kind of buy best in class tools from all these different vendors and right. each one did a point thing. But my hypothesis in the like dynamic digital shelf world is all those tools have to be integrated because they're all totally dependent on each other. Like you, like I'm shocked how many Amazon sellers are buying ads on out of stock. <laughs> oh my gosh. And like, you know, I mean, it like, just yeah. all these things are so so interrelated in a in a way that that is a very different model than traditional brick and mortar retail. That's right. You know, we uh, we're opening up our office, and uh, one of the super lame ideas that I had for a decoration was to build a physical value chain, a paper chain, and I thought it'd be really fun to, you know, first and foremost, has, have everybody's names on it. Because at the end of the day, you don't have a company if you're only as good as the people that work for you. Um, that is that is true without exception over the long run, at least. Um, but but you're absolutely right, right? Like the interrelationship between every single touch point of a company, whether you're, again, M&A, marketing, brand growth, supply chain every single decision that you make 
has a ripple effect on every other person. And so, you know, when we think about our organizational structure, we try to be as flat as we can be. We purposefully encourage people to meet their counterparts in other organizations so that they're not just sitting in a silo and saying, well, I'm on the marketing team and that is a supply chain problem, not my problem. Actually, it is because you're about to blow your budget getting that thing back on page one off the page of doom because this thing went out of stock. So you need to be in lockstep so you can pull back on the spend so that you're not buying, spending 40% of your budget on out-of-stock product, right? Especially if a head ace and God forbid falls out of stock, it's a big deal and people need to be talking about it. But my biggest thing, and I beat this drum constantly, is the problem with having you know, 25 point solutions is then you have 25 dashboards you have to look at. You have 25 systems you have to log into and you have to make the connections yourself. And sorry, but like human brain, it gets tired. People have a bad night. People have a bad day and you make mistakes. But by being able to pull it all together, visualize it in one space and see how pulling lever A affects object Z like that, that is what we constantly push ourselves for and constantly drive toward. Yeah. Yeah. And so you kind of answered, uh, you, you asked me like, what would the next things on my list be, uh, for your roadmap? And you kind of then named them, right. It's, it's supply chain and analytics for those, mm-hmm. for those very reasons you just covered, mm-hmm. uh, Side note, uh, are you hosting your tech stack on Azure? Did you, did you go Google Cloud Platform or Azure? Well, <laughs> I think you're kidding, but uh, no, Amazon Web Services all the way. I'm shocked. Uh, that makes a lot of sense now, but as soon as you try to expand off of Amazon to those other platforms, yep, yep. Uh, that's going to become a, a, yeah, a no, conversation we, we again. We use some GCP products. We use Looker. We use Fivetran um, for, for some API connections. So we're, you know, we started on AWS because, frankly, they gave us free credits. And so, boy, are they sticky with that. Yeah, yeah. That, uh, I hear that's a decent business. <laughs> um, the, uh, you, you opened the door to a super interesting topic right now, which is like supply chain and product availability, mm-hmm. particularly around holiday at this point. Um, uh, earlier this week, Target and Walmart both had earnings calls, and they both assured investors that they were well positioned for holiday but like sure you hear from any of the the suppliers and it sounds a little dicey no one can hire anyone everybody's uh factory workers are on strike um tons of disruptions in asia right now going the wrong way uh on on pandemic stuff like what yep. what's your pov for holiday are we are we in for some pain or is it overblown i mean buy your gifts now is my pov um you know it, 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 I think it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be tough. I don't think, well, I don't know. COVID is the big, the big asterisk to everything I'm about to say, because, you know, we've already seen in Ningbo, for example, the port shut down for a couple of days because of a couple of COVID cases there. One of our factories got completely flooded by the typhoon. I mean, there are already so many issues beyond the fact that there are at any given time, 50 boats trying to get into the port of LA. And some of those containers belong to us. Some of those containers belong to Target and Walmart. And so we're kind of all collectively in this, uh, well, for lack of a better term, we're in this boat together. (laughs) Um, The difference is the big box retailers and a lot of the big players have, you know, a much, much larger physical warehouse footprint where presumably they have seen these potential issues coming and have, you know, bought goods in advance of needing to get them on store shelves. Um, you know, we certainly have, but as early as we thought we were, <laughs> we probably could have even been a month or two earlier uh, because we're still seeing delays really across the board. Um, and it's, and a lot of it is international. A lot of it is domestic, right? Like, we'll get bumped from, you know, delivery from point A to point B and, you know, Kentucky to New Jersey and, you know, UPS won't show up. And that's not a knock on UPS. Like maybe their truck driver got COVID, right? I mean, there's just so many small things that compound the delays. I think it's going to be tough. 
And I hope I'm wrong. Like I'm saying this, but I really hope I'm wrong. I hope we all get to sleep very happily at night because we had a great holiday season and kids are happy and we're all happy. I really hope that's the case, but we're, we're preparing for the worst. No, that, uh, and it's possible for both to be true, right? Like Target and Walmart could have enough leverage that they do believe they're going to be okay. Right. Uh, from a supply chain and it could be the rest of the world that, that, uh, um, struggles. But uh, uh, like side note on the demand, I think Home Depot also had an earnings call this this week and they mentioned that they got their first it's it's mid-August. They got their first uh, shipment of Halloween goods and they're already out. Oh, man. (laughs) Um, Oh, man. (laughs) Yeah. So per your shop early comment, I I think not only is availability a problem, but also, as you know, everything's just getting more expensive because the cost of those containers and shipping and everything just keeps keeps going up. Um, and that, that leads me to part two of, uh, why I'm not going to sleep this holiday period. Uh, last holiday, uh, Scott coined this, this term that got a lot of attraction ship again. Um, and we, <laughs> we, we, uh, talked about, you know, the, the fact that like, obviously COVID drove everyone online. And so there was this, you know, you know, outsized, uh, demand for, for e-commerce fulfillment and, you know, UPS and, and FedEx have a finite ability to, to flex, to meet that. Um, the, um, I'm curious, like, it, it seems like it's going to be an equal or bigger problem this year. And I'm, I'm chuckling because the United States Postal Service just announced that they discovered this new business practice the FedEx and UPS have been doing called surcharges. <laughs> um, so now even, even the U.S. Postal <laughs> Service is looking to, to do holiday surcharges yep. and they're, you know, all the quotas for holiday are already out. And of course, your friends at Amazon are, you know, largely the one and only um, uh, retailer at scale that owns their own, la- a lot of their own last mile. So, mm-hmm. like, do you, is is that an advantage for being on the Amazon platform? Are they likely to run out of capacity and constrain FBAs? Like, do you, are you yeah. worried about fulfillment this year and how that's going to impact holiday at all? I am less worried about outbound fulfillment as I am inbound because of what you just said, which is capacity constraints. And, you know, any listener who has an Amazon business knows that the, there was a change this year where, well, I guess last year, Amazon started imposing skew level caps, right? And so even if you had a portfolio that was concentrated around one or two top selling products that do 85% of your sales, you know, at least you could probably be okay on those, even if you hit caps on sort of your tail selection. They moved to a model, which is, it is at the account level now a cap. And we were all super happy about that because we said, well, we have all these new products that we're launching. And because they have no sales history, we can only trickle 20 units in at a time. We fall out of stock, another 20 units, we fall out of stock. And the problem with the domestic delays is we could be out of stock for three weeks on that, right? Even if our warehouse is next door to the fulfillment center, we could still not have our products sellable again for three weeks. And there is nothing that will kill your cold start product launch faster than being out of stock, <laughs> right? And so that that has been an issue throughout the year. And they kept saying, you know, July 1st, the caps will be lifted. And they were in some cases and they weren't in other cases. And so my big concern is just that we won't have the capacity available to us at FBA to get all of the goods in that we need to get in. And so even if we are have a dozen, two dozen, you know, a thousand shipments waiting, there's nothing that you can really do. There's no one that you can pick up and call and say, hey, can you like, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, get my stuff in faster. You just can't do it. And so you just wait. And that's a really uncomfortable spot to be in. So, you know, and then, and so we operate in Canada, right? We have seen on Amazon Canada where, whole fulfillment centers have shut down due to COVID. And you see promise dates go from two days for prime shipping to seven days for prime shipping. No matter which zip code you put in, no matter where you say you are in Canada, we've had some of our products that the prime delivery date is a six-day window. And that has been the case for months. And so outbound from that perspective, it does depress demand. That's why I'm saying buy stuff sooner because you might get a six-day promise. But yeah, I'm I'm more concerned about the inbound and being able to keep 
goods on the digital shelves through the through the entirety of the holiday season because you can't you can't remanufacture that demand and if we come out super super heavy like maybe it helps us through lunar new year which was also pretty tough last year uh but yeah it, it's it's going to be really interesting um and so again we're doing everything that we can to try to you know make sure that all of our ducks are in a row all of our goods are stateside everything's ready to go on the chance that we can actually get you know, goods moved in. Um, but it'll be a struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and as, as you alluded to the Canadian supply chain is even more fragile because one of those sled dog teams gets sick and yep. the whole province gets cut off. No, I'm just, I had, I had <laughs> Xboxes, uh, the year, um, Xbox one release. I had Xboxes on a train, uh, in the mid, in the dead center of the country. And we literally sent a helicopter to pick the Xboxes <laughs> up off the train and fly them to Toronto so that we could actually meet because we took pre-orders, right? And we had to meet release date delivery on those Xboxes. So we, we've done some crazy stuff to make it work in Canada. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole new new definition of air, air freight. Jeez. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, the, so the drones will hopefully help, help with that. I did want to, um, you, you mentioned that you were seeing kind of the, the caps and quotas moving from from uh, uh, skews to to categories. One interesting um, hypothesis I've heard from a, a, a bunch of like reasonably high volume Amazon sellers at the moment is, as the catalog has gotten so huge, and there's like by some counts like 800 million skews in the catalog now. Um, there's a hypothesis that Amazon is strongly. Um, preferencing new SKUs. And so a lot of people have said that they feel like the the caps and quotas that they're getting on mature SKUs that in the old days, like your quota would have just gone bigger every year based on your sales history, that they're now running into this new problem where um, Amazon's reserving a fair amount of space for new stuff instead of the old stuff. And I can imagine that's scary and or problematic in in your business model have you seen that at all is that viable i have seen chatter about it that is we have empirically not seen that to be the case for our brands uh we also don't operate in every category you know i'm sure there are plenty of higher volume you know on a brand by brand basis sellers out there who are seeing crazy stuff uh for us, like I said, we're launching a whole host of new products and it's 20 units at a time and then you sell out, but now your cap is 60. You're like, oh, awesome. I have three times the cap, but it's still 60. It's not 6,000, which is what we would need to actually you know, <laughs> generate the volume that's going to get us on page one. And so while our you know, top selling products, we are running up against caps there as well. It has not been... The issue really comes from when you have a, a brand level cap, your best selling products are inevitably going to take up most of the cap. And in order for us to hold a rational level of safety stock, um, it doesn't leave a whole lot of extra space for the new products. And so, you know, again, we're, we're not really seeing that, that, you know, thought bear out in our businesses. Uh, doesn't mean that they aren't. But yeah, it just, we don't, we don't, pun intended, we don't put a lot of stock in that right now. <laughs> hey, uh, the one, one question we've been uh, following this kind of Amazon versus Shopify debate, and we've had some folks on talking about headless commerce. Um, have you guys thought about, uh, you know, another big strategy for anyone selling on Amazon is to open up your own website. Have you guys chosen a platform there or do you have any opinions about kind of where the e-commerce platform wars are going? Mm. I have a lot of opinions. Um, <laughs> we are, so the direct to consumer space uh, is, is what we firmly believe is like very core to our ability as a company to build long-term value to have a website that customers interact with, engage with, are loyal to, know, know to find products from, we believe that's core. Uh, for some brands, more than others, right? 
we have inherited by way of acquisition. Um, most people just spin up a Shopify account and then fulfill via FBA. Um, and so we have predominantly leaned into Shopify as a platform for now. I think we are still so focused at this time, especially at this time <laughs> in making sure that we're in stock on Amazon and that we have sort of that nuts and bolts day zero operational excellence with Amazon, which is core to our portfolio that we haven't, we haven't, we haven't dedicated a tremendous amount of resources in fully kicking the tires on all of the headless options, all of the other platform options. We've had conversations with all of them, but we haven't actually made a concerted effort to say we are 100% doing away with Shopify in favor of X for these reasons. Um, we haven't seen the need, quite frankly. Got it. And then, um, so you've been in the retail game for quite a while. One of our kind of favorite ending questions is if you, if you kind of think forward, let's say three or five years, just kind of take you out of the, the, the current, um, where do you, where do you see e-commerce going? Wow. I ask a flavor of this question when I interview people. Ah, uh, we're turning it on you. So what, what this is bringing up is, uh, <laughs> feelings, reactions to a lot of the changes around consumer privacy, you know, iOS 14 and, and, and all of therefore the platforms that were, you know, I'll say hoovering up data and applying it in sometimes great ways. And in other times, maybe less great ways. Um, I, I, it hurts me a little bit inside because what I believe is that Actually, the the ability for us to build, like, to use data to build products that delight customers, like, that is core to again building long term value. And I also believe, and this is getting back to the question, that the ability to reach customers where they want to shop with the products that they're most interested or that that suit them the best. I think we've taken a step back from that. And my hope is that we will continue to evolve responsibly as a society and as companies, as leaders of sort of this new wave of retail in a way that can still surprise and delight customers, that can still deliver product innovations that are meaningful and they're not just, you know, we wiggle a little here, we do a little dongle there and ta-da, it's a new product because it's actually fundamentally not. Like I, I, I view the next three to five years as an evolution toward getting even smarter about the products that we're building, even better at reaching consumers who are actually interested in what we're selling so that you're not just on your endless scroll of social media and you're getting hit with ads that are just completely irrelevant. And it sort of degrades your experience on that platform and it degrades the brand experience. And that's what we care about. We care about the brand experience. That would be awesome. If it plays out, we'll have to see Alex. Um, <laughs> we will see. Exactly. Um, well, hopefully you'll be like retired and fabulously wealthy. So you'll just be be watching it from Jeff Bezos yacht. But that's going to have to be uh, where we leave it because it's happened again. We've used up an hour of our listeners time. I, um, at, it. I know it goes fast. We've, we've certainly enjoyed chatting with you. If listeners have any comments or questions, uh, they're encouraged to hit us up on Twitter or leave us a note on our Facebook page. And as always, if uh, you enjoyed this episode, we sure would be grateful if you jump on uh, iTunes and give us that five-star review. Alex, we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule, uh, dominating the the Amazon aggregation world. And uh, if folks uh, want to find you online, what's kind of the best place do you, are you on the, the Twitter box or MySpace or where, where do you hang out online? <laughs> oh my gosh. Do I still have a MySpace account? That's kind of scary. He has a Twitch account. He's, he, he's Twitch. He's a Twitch streamer. That's right. Yeah. No, you can find me on Twitch. Um, no, I, I, I am predominantly on LinkedIn. You can uh, connect with me, follow me on LinkedIn, shoot me a message there. Um, feel free to drop me a line, alex at forumbrands.com. Um, otherwise I, I am on the Twitter box, but I am sadly not as much of a contributor as I, uh, wish that I, that I wish that I could be. I'm just not that funny. 
Well, I think you did pretty good here on the show. You were funnier than Jason, which is what's well, actually kind of a low bar. But yeah, don't we, I know that that's not me for God's <laughs> sakes. Jason gets the most uh, activity out of his grumpy old man tweets. <laughs> well, that's the topic for another show. But uh, thanks. We really appreciate the time. Uh, and Jason, until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 